Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Welcome back, everyone. As we approach the end of season one, it's finally time to discuss the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay at Pannoni's Market in Providence, Rhode Island, April 20th, 1968. Well, at least up until the aftermath of May of 1969, the second set of arrests will be coming in episode 48. If you haven't listened to last week's episode about the murder of Willie Maffeo, Rudy's brother, you might want to check that out first. We named today's episode Gaslit because it would later be revealed at the second trial of the men accused of the murders of Maffeo and Malay that the meeting to arrange for the hit took place at a restaurant in Providence called The Gaslight. And in true Gaslight fashion, over a decade later, it would be disclosed during that same individual's testimony that The Gaslight wasn't even open at the time of the supposed meeting due to a fire. And that the government, specifically FBI Special Agent H. Paul Rico, was the one who directed the informant to perjure himself. Now, who was gaslighting who, we'll never really know for sure. But at the beginning of season two, we'll take a deep dive into the trial and all of the possibilities. You know I've been waiting nearly a year to do these episodes. Just like the name of this episode, that's it. You love gaslight. (laughs) Well, that is part of it. At least you get to share one of your theories about the murders and one of the suspects. And the second reason is that the feds have spent decades gaslighting us into believing their smoke and mirrors show. Oh, that too. So let's jump in. Like in Willie's murder, the feds claim that it was years in the making, but we'll only be going back to the summer of 1967. As Laura mentioned at the beginning, you can listen to our last episode for earlier events. Today, we'll also be giving more background on the suspects and the victim's associates, except for Dickie Calais, who we'll be covering in season two. We'll end today with the immediate aftermath of the murders and the conviction of Robert Almonte in the May of 1969. All right, here we go. On August 14, 1967, Rudy Schiara, pro learner and Louis Minacchio were arrested in Attleboro while idling in front of the Holiday Inn Hotel. Wasn't that the fifth anniversary of the Plymouth mail truck heist? Yep. You know, it's most of these stories. There's some weird date thing that seems to be more than coincidental. Anyhow, Pro was in the driver's seat when he was approached by patrolman Paquin and Convey at around 10.15 in the evening. The police asked for Pro's license and registration. The car was registered to Pro's mom. The trio said they weren't staying at the hotel, but they were there waiting for a girlfriend. Rudy Maffeo gave his name as Joseph Russo. Joseph Russo isn't J.R. Russo? (laughs) Oh, probably some spiteful thing or something. Who knows? But the cops knew it was a lie. These guys were always using the names of other criminals when they got picked up. Wouldn't you pick the name of someone who you hadn't been in prison with? It just makes no sense to me. (laughs) Hey, they were geniuses. After a call was placed to the Providence PD that revealed Louis' lengthy record, two other cruisers arrived and the boys were asked to step out of the vehicle, advised of their rights, and placed under arrest. All three refused to provide any info other than their names, bogus or not. The following day, they were arraigned, but the charges were soon dropped. Supposedly in the latter part of 1967, Colonel Walter Stone of the Rhode Island State Police gave a verbal order to his men to surveil the following men. Louis Minacchio, Rudy Schiara, Robert Fairbrothers, Johnny Rossi, 
Raymond Patriarca, and other Federal Hill guys. The reason for the order was the shootouts that had taken place with some regularity starting that summer. On June 20th of that year, there was a drive-by shooting at Joe Maffeo's house in Cranston. Joe's wife, Rose Nibakari, was home when two shots were fired. Joe wasn't home because he was at the police department filing a report that his son's car had been shot at on Federal Hill. Man, these people were trashy and decades of shooting at each other. And they were all in-laws. All in-laws, all inbred, and each generation had the same names. I need a whiteboard to keep track of their connections to one another. I know you're going to shoot me and I'm not supposed to do this because it's too confusing, but I want to do one of these little twisted in-law things. So Rudy Skiara's daughter got pregnant by the boy of the woman who had an illegitimate kid with Louis Minocchio. Try keeping that straight in your head. (laughs) That's why we have the wiki tree thing. I don't know if WikiTree will show that one. (laughs) Well, we're going to put the link in the show notes for your gangster genealogy project on Wiki. Any of our listeners who would like to contribute are more than welcome to. Okay, back to Providence. The same day Joe Maffeo was dealing with drive-bys, Raymond Patriarca and Henry Tamilio were arrested for conspiring to murder Willie Maffeo. It was Raymond's first arrest in 20 years. Henry was arrested at at a motel on Route 1 in Wakefield, Mass. They were both freed on $25,000 bail the next day. Ronnie Cassessa was also charged, but he was doing a 9-12 to bid in Norfolk for an armed robbery. The day after that, there was a shootout on Federal Hill between Bobby Fairbrothers and Dickie Collet with Joe Schiavone. The incident seems to have been the catalyst for Walter Stone's order to keep an eye on the guys, but beyond that, the cops did nothing about the shootout. Then, in November, there was another shootout on Federal Hill, this time between Schiavone and Louis Minocchio on Atwell's Ave. Louis was left hospitalized with a bullet wound to the neck, and Schiavone was picked up and charged with illegal possession of a firearm. In the eight months following Walter Stone's orders, the cops arrested the men at various times under what they claimed were suspicious circumstances and searched them for weapons. On April 2nd, 1968, at around 3 in the morning, the Providence PD received a phone call from someone at Robert Almonte's club at 153 Atwell's Ave. Louis Minocchio, Rudy Schiara, Johnny Rossi, Dickie Collet, and the others were armed and waiting for Almonte at, at Almonte's for Joe Schiavone to walk by so they could kill him. The cops raided Almonte's 30 minutes later and found the weapons as well as gambling paraphernalia. Louis and the other men were arrested and charged with illegal possession of weapons. Almonte was charged with possessing gambling paraphernalia, but all the charges were eventually dropped. Well, let's talk about the gang at Almonte's. Last week, we covered Louis Minocchio's early days, so we won't rehash them here. Who do you want to start with? Well, let's start with Johnny Rossi. Not because he was very interesting, but his dad, Alfredo, the blind pig Rossi, and his family of fur thieves were. <laughs> that crazy story where Alfredo's wife and the daughter had the stolen furs in Florida, or that other one where they were renting a store next to a fur shop so that they could break in from the inside. And they even had the brother-in-law in on it anyway. <laughs> but yes, all of those stories. And then there's the death of John's brother, Joseph, who had been dabbling in petty crime. He dropped dead at 33 years of age just one day before a secret indictment against Rudy Sciarra was handed down later in 1968. Both John and Joseph were addicts. I suspect Joseph probably OD'd, but whether it was an accident or someone gave him bad dope is still an open question. 
As for John, he had a record going back to 1956 when he was in the service. He went AWOL in August of that year and landed in the stockades. When he was discharged and returned to Providence, Rhode Island, he landed in the can within a few months. He was picked up on robbery conspiracy charges, possession of an unlicensed weapon, and motor vehicle violations, and sentenced to three years in Howard. Upon his release, he was arrested on a variety of charges, including possession of a hypodermic needle, which landed him back in Howard in 65. His next arrest was the night at Almonte's Club. Joan would remain on the streets until August 12, 1969. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. So let's discuss Robert E. Fairbrothers next. He was born in Rhode Island in 1938 to Carmela Scunzio and George Fairbrother. And it was actually Fairbrother, but at some point an S got added to the end of the last name. It looks like it started with Robert's parents. Well, not re- directly related to the Bakaris or the Maffeos, Fairbrothers was a longtime associate of theirs. He was picked up on three separate occasions in 1956. The last time was in December of that year on charges of possessing burglary tools. In 1957, he was arrested for a B&E, possession of burglary tools, being unlawfully present in a dwelling, and rape. He was sentenced to Howard, but only did a little over a year. In 1959, he was back on the streets, only to be pinched for burglary again, and back to Howard he went. His next arrest wasn't until March of 63 for being a suspicious person. What a shocker. In 1965, he was arrested for frequenting gambling operations. It would be another three years before Fairbrothers would find himself a guest of the authorities again. In October, he was indicted along with Rudy Schiara and Ronaldo Pietratonio, I can't say that one, for extortion and conspiracy to commit murder. The victim was Louis Zoglio. I know, I know I have to wait to tell Zoglio's story. Like Rossi, Fairbrothers would face charges on August 12, 1969. Although we talked about Rudy Schiara's suspected crimes before, it's been quite a while, so let's cover it again. Rudy's record went all the way back to 1939 when he was arrested in Massachusetts for stealing a car. To add to his misery, in October of that year, he escaped and fled to Rhode Island only to find himself arrested on fresh auto larceny charges and shipped off to Howard. But he got lucky when the charges were dropped later that same month. In October of 42, Rudy Schiara, Willie Maffeo, and Angela DeSaro, the uncle of a future murder victim of Frankie Salemi's, were arrested for a B&E at the West Exchange Warehouse. The liquor theft had taken place in April of 41. Willie had several priors at that point, mostly driving offenses, but also attempted larceny. Rudy enlisted in the Army in March of 43, presumably to avoid the jail sentence. At the end of World War II, Schiara remained in the service, but visited home in his home in Providence when he could. He was arrested on September 1st, 1946 by the Rhode Island Stadies for being in an illegal gambling establishment. That stunt would land him in the U.S. disciplinary barracks in Cumberland, Pennsylvania to serve a two-year sentence. He was discharged from the service upon completion of his bid and headed back to Providence. By 1950, he had been pinched for assault and battery, followed by another arrest for having brass knuckles in his possession, playing craps on a Sunday, and to end the decade in style, he was arrested on drug charges in April of 1959. Nothing ever came of any of those charges. On January 24th, 1962, Skira was charged with the murder of Jackie Nazarian. After he was arrested for Jackie's slaying, Raymond Patriarca contemplated hiring an unnamed ballistics and fingerprint expert to get the charges against Skira dropped. One theory for why Jackie was killed was because when Raymond was sick, Jackie supposedly told people he was going to take Raymond's spot. 
Skira was acquitted in February of 63, but he wasn't the only one accused. Willie Maffeo was later arrested for Jackie's murder, but the authorities were never able to get an indictment. In June of 1965, Skiara faced federal gambling tax charges along with the rest of the gang, including Henry Tamilio, Andrew and Louis Minocchio, Angelo De Palma, and others. 1968 would be filled with more than a handful of arrests, including murder charges, but the worst was yet to come in August of 69. You keep teasing people with oh, well, that. Because that's the whole point of this. I mean, this is the end of the season coming up. Come on. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about Almonte's background. In February of 1959, Robert Almonte and two associates had been arrested in New Hampshire for loitering. Probably nothing out of the ordinary for him, but not long after that, the body of Maurice Gagnon was discovered shot to death in his car in the same area. The cops suspected suspected that the three men were involved because the other two men were in court on charges of robbing Maurice Gagnon, who was scheduled to testify against them the day after he was murdered. The other two men were sentenced to death, but eventually paroled. The Attorney General of New Hampshire dropped the murder accessory charge against Robert exactly 11 months after Gagnon's body had been found. He said it was only circumstantial evidence that placed Almonte at the scene and that he didn't have a case. Just two months later, in March of 1960, Almonte was in the news again, this time because of a fire at the Plaza Hotel in Providence. Robert threw himself out of the window and fractured his spine in the process. I shouldn't be laughing. Well, he probably set the fire himself, the weirdo. Or someone was beating him up, threw him out of the window, and lit the fire as a distraction. I can't. I know we shouldn't be laughing. It's Poor possible, man, though. So. One of our listeners, David, asked about whether or not there were FBI informants in Providence, so this is a probably a good time to touch on that. Before the wiretap was installed at the Coinomatic in March of 1962, FBI Special Agent Charles Rapucci had a contact who worked on Federal Hill and had some access to Raymond and his base of operations. But it doesn't appear that this person was a member of Raymond's inner circle. This individual was reporting to Rapucci quite regularly and giving him information about the comings and goings at Raymond's. I'm not certain who this person was exactly, although I suspect it may have been Almonte. The location of his club was very close to the Coinomatic. I know the AG in New Hampshire made a big deal about circumstantial evidence when they sprung Almonte in 1960, but in my opinion, he probably made a deal. And nothing was being given away for nothing in this story, so it's possible. We'll get back to Almonte shortly. As I said earlier, on the Saturday after Easter, April 20th, 1968, just before 3 p.m., Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Millay were gunned down in Pannoni's Market at 282 Pocasset Ave in the Silver Lake section of Providence, Rhode Island, by two masked men. Anthony Millay was shot from a distance of roughly six feet away near the ice cream freezer and Rudy Maffeo from a distance of about three feet, just near the front door of the store with his 38 in hand. The shots tore Maffeo's left side apart and hit Malay directly in the face. A single copper jacketed lead bullet, a 30 caliber cartridge case and five shotgun shells were found at the scene. The murder weapons were a carbine and a shotgun. When the autopsies were complete, the medical examiner stated that 15 lead fragments were removed from Maffeo's body and four from Malay's. I know the feds claimed Anthony Malay was Rudy's bodyguard, but I still think they were having a feud of some sort. 
You're not going to get an argument from me. Frank Millay Jr. gets killed in Rudy's apartment. Joseph Maffeo gets shot in his own driveway. There's no shortage of feuds here. But Anthony Millay had been working for the Maffeos for a couple of years at the time of the killings. Well, back to the shooting. As the two shooters and the getaway driver fled, Louis Millay, a nephew of Anthony, saw the getaway car leaving the scene. He had left his parents' home to get a pack of cigarettes when the 65 or 66 Red Buick sped past him. He had to swerve onto the sidewalk in order to avoid a head-on collision. He looked in his rearview mirror and he came to, as, as he came to a stop and saw MR on the license plate and three men in the vehicle, but he couldn't ID them with any certainty. The getaway car was found abandoned with a cut-down 30 caliber Alpine carbine. Its serial number had been erased. A 12-gauge Higgins shotgun, a 12-gauge forehand arms double-barreled shotgun, a 2-inch barreled 38 Smith and Wesson and a four inch barreled 38 Colt revolver, all with the serial number still intact. Hairs were also recovered from the vehicle. The license plates recovered from the vehicle were comprised of two plates welded together, not the triptych plates that Jack Kelly preferred to use. As for the hairs Nina mentioned, they were naturally red, bleached, and brown pubic. Your buddy, Hal Monty, submitted hair samples to be compared, and although the match wasn't definitive, he couldn't be ruled out. Three different types of cigarettes were found in the car, along with the Halloween masks with the eyes cut out more than the manufacturer had. There was also a brown felt hat, a raincoat, a plaid sports jacket, tan pants with a black belt, two nylon stockings, a cap, a handkerchief, and sunglasses. The initial suspects were Rudy Sciarra, Dickie Calais, Johnny Rossi, Richard J. Catracci, whose name sounds really familiar. He's, I know he's related to these people. Anyway. <laughs> I know. And I think it's Quattrochi, Quattrochi, like Quattro, like four. And then that CCH is always that huh kind of a sound. Like, it's you know, so Monopoly funny too. Kind of but anyway, I know. Okay. All right. Oculus. Robert Fairbrothers, Alex Mandine, Andrew and Louis Minocchio, the Badway brothers, Raymond, Malcolm, and Joseph, and Richard Ricci, who I think was also a relative of some sort. Yeah, definitely a Bakari relative. So since we've already given some background on a few of our suspects, I want to give a little bit of a background about Rudy Maffeo. He was known for being a booster rather than a gambler most of his life, but as his brother Willie and Willie's partner Joseph Schiavone became more successful, he joined them in their dice game operation. Rudy put up $2,500 to become a partner with the two of them in 1965. At the time of his slaying, Rudy was living at home with his wife and three of his four daughters. His fourth daughter, Lucille Hasney, gave a statement to the feds about her father and his murder. She stated that about four months before her father was killed, Rudy Schiara and Louis Minocchio approached him about taking over his book and the dice games he was by then running on his own. She said Schiara and Minocchio were jealous of her father and that she was his confidant and knew everything about his operations. The dice game above Andreazzi's liquor store were run Monday to Friday at night and on Saturday afternoons. In 1965, they had a Sunday afternoon craft game on DeSoto Street, but it only ran for two weeks when Patriarca told Willie that they had to close the game. Willie continued for another two weeks, but then did permanently close it. Lucille provided a detailed accounting of the events that unfolded between her uncle Willie being killed and her father's murder. Before Willie had been killed, Raymond supposedly told them that he himself was planning to run his own dice game, and when it began, they would have to close theirs, but Raymond never started his own game. After Willie was killed, Rudy went to Raymond and asked him if he wanted a piece of the dice game as he didn't want any trouble. 
Raymond allegedly told him that he wasn't interested in the game. I'm telling you, Lucille kept a lot of things well, on that version. Well. Of that. <laughs> the game reopened the day after Willie was buried. Supposedly after the shortly after the game reopened, allegedly Louis Minocchio and Rudy Schiara tried to scare off the customers, but it didn't work. When Anthony De Palma was subpoenaed to testify against Raymond in 68, he approached Rudy Maffeo and asked for a sit-down. The meeting took place in the abasement of 23 Tabor Drive in Johnston, Rhode Island. Savino Maffeo Jr., Anthony De Palma, Rudy Maffeo, Anthony Malay, Fred Maffeo, Raymond Patriarca, and Joe Badway were in attendance. Rudy's daughter listened at the top of the stairs. Raymond wanted one of the Maffeo brothers who didn't have a record. Who would that have been? <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> to testify at the Willie Maffeo murder trial that Willie and he were friends and had no problems with each other. Rudy told Raymond that he would think about who it could be, and Raymond promised to have whoever killed Willie murdered. Anthony Malay didn't have a lengthy record. In 1965, he was picked up on unspecified narcotics charges. Then in January of 67, he was arrested for being a lookout at the Maffeo dice game. The next time Anthony would make the papers was when he was slain. The majority of the evidence, some four boxes in total, were handed over to the FBI in order for them to conduct their own investigation. And please don't tell me again that the feds supposedly don't deal with homicides. Hey, I didn't make that up. That's what a fed told me. Now, why the feds would be involved just one day after is beyond me. Two Providence guys killed in Providence, but the papers were running with the scoop that Rudy and Anthony were killed for the same reason Willie was. Translation, ITAR case, and a way to go after Raymond. Well, they've been looking for an excuse for years, and they had. I just can't. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I know. Save it for later. <laughs> ah! Both men were laid to rest on April 23rd, and the next announcement from the authorities was on May 3rd. Commissioner Harry Goldstein said that it appeared that the current investigation would be a long and ongoing one, but Robert Almonte was arrested the evening of May 27th at his social club on Atwell's Ave. He was arraigned and entered a, a plea of not guilty the next day and held without bail. The bail hearing was held on June 21st, and the judge set $65,000 for each of the murder charges. On June 25th, indictments were returned against Almonte, and Almonte was returned to Howard since he was unable to post bail. But on July 2nd, Alan and Elaine Fardy, who was Robert's sister, posted his bail. Almost a year later, in May of 1969, the state began submitting evidence against Almonte. Mary Bakari, the one who was living in Tiger Boletto's house, submitted a statement that one of the shooters was tall and the other short. But why was she living at Tiger <laughs> Boletto's family home? Don't Tiger know. Been dead for several years at that point, supposedly killed by Jackie Nazarian. <laughs> so from what I can tell, Mary Bakari was the wife of a Bakari. And according to later statements, she was having an affair with Rudy Maffeo. The reason she was in the market that day was because Rudy would buy her groceries every Saturday at Pannoni's. It was apparently a long-standing ritual. All I can say is that it's Rhode Island. Mary did admit that he was shopping. She was shopping with both of the men when they were killed. She left out the part that Rudy was paying for her food and stooping her. Almonte's trial began later that month, and on the evening of May 29th, he was found guilty of the two murders. But not for long. 
More Fed magic, but we won't be discussing the second group of men arrested for the Mafeo Malay hit until episode 48. Next week, our subjects are going to be Nikki Bianco and Frank Butchie Maselli, a New York Colombo guy and a New Jersey Gambino family member, both stuck with Raymond and the endless drama of Providence. Thanks you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. 